science is continuing to find evidence that the evolutionary process has been integral to the development of life on Earth. This appears to put science into conflict with the Bible's account of God's creative process, forcing us to choose between the two, evolution or creation, science or faith. In this article, I want to discuss one way in which evolution could rather be seen as compatible with a creative process which is all God's, set in motion by him and showing evidence of his fingerprints. The concept of cooperation is an exciting lens through which to view the creative evolutionary process as it embodies scriptural principles of love, relationship, and agape. So, how do we see the fingerprints of God in an evolutionary process that has been characterized by the selfish gene? To do so, we need to explore the concept of cooperation as a necessary component of evolution alongside competition. While competition alone has long been touted as the primary relationship between organisms, cooperation is now shown to be equally important. Not only is it important, but it is essential for the increasing complexity that has occurred in nature. I myself am compelled by evidence for cooperation in evolution, since it can help us to infer a relational God as the source of a creative evolutionary process. Perhaps what we know about God can help us to see his fingerprints in the natural world elucidated by science. Cooperation is evident at a biological material level in cells which function cooperatively in an organism, such as a fish. However, it becomes more meaningful in organisms that intentionally behave cooperatively and perhaps even altruistically towards one another, like dolphins. Yet, the altruistic behavior of human beings seems to be streaks ahead of that seen in animals, and the self-sacrificing behavior embodied for Christians by the term agape is unique. Such attitudes of mind and of corresponding behavior seem to go beyond what can be explained by innate instinct or fellow feeling to reflect the divine, the fingerprints of God. As we know, science is empirical. That is, it can only tell us about things that can be observed and tested. It cannot tell us anything about the veracity of philosophical or religious ideas, and specifically it cannot tell us whether God exists. So, any inference from the observation of cooperation in nature as to its meaning and purpose is no longer under the aegis of science. Science answers questions about how but philosophy and religion address the question 
of why. Darwin's scientific observations led him to formulate a thesis of evolution based on natural selection. This he understood to be a competitive struggle for existence. Having as yet no genetic knowledge to underpin his conclusions, his theories were based on the observation of the breeding of such animals as cattle, dogs, and pigeons, but also included the observation of the cultural environment of human beings. He noted that cooperative behavior occurred often in nature in animals such as elephants, baboons, and pelicans. And he was convinced that this cooperative behavior evolved further in human beings. It wasn't until later that the knowledge of genetics as described by Mendel led to a modification of the Darwinian theory described by Neo-Darwinism. The discussion and description of the evolutionary process thenceforward became focused on the gene. Turning to scripture, God tells us in such passages as Psalm 19, Romans 1 and Job 38 to 41, that what we see in nature witnesses to his existence, to his glory, and to his sustaining care for all in his cosmos. When science, therefore, points to evidence of cooperation in nature, we can choose to see in that cooperation the fingerprints of a relational God and his golden rule. Jesus said, In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, and love your neighbour as yourself. Interpreting the first chapters of Genesis, Christians believed that all was created by the fiat of an all-powerful God, ex nihilo, and over a very short period of time. But Darwin's theory of evolution revolutionized this perception forever. While archaeology has helped us to understand those early chapters of Genesis in the cultural context of the ancient Near East, the narrative describing the grandeur and power of Yahweh setting up his cosmic temple is still awe-inspiring and serves to reinforce our belief in a God who is creator and sustainer of the universe. In contrast to this grand and lofty narrative, which lacks any hint of violence, the dominating metaphor of the evolutionary process became Alfred Lord Tennyson's Nature Red in Tooth and Claw. In his poem, In Memoriam, Tennyson explores the tension between the apparently violent history of the earth and the concept of a God of love evidenced in his creation. In Canto 56, he exclaims, Who trusted God was love indeed, and love creation's final law, though nature, red in tooth and claw, with ravine shrieked against his creed. This violent, poetic portrayal of nature's competitive interactions was subsequently endorsed in the scientific language of Dawkins' selfish gene. How could such a violent, competitive, 
selfish process be one that God could use? It sounds very much as though it is an antithesis to his character. However, more recent understanding of the evolutionary process is showing us that competition is not the sole operative mechanism of nature, but is complemented by cooperation. Mathematical biology uses something called game theory to explain how cooperation can be a viable and necessary mechanism in such an apparently violent and selfish process. And we will come back to this shortly. Also, examining the history of the universe in general, and of our Earth in particular, we note the trend towards increasing complexity from the Big Bang to self-conscious, rational human beings. And yet, increasing complexity would not seem to be a path naturally favoured by competitive evolutionary processes alone. Martin Novak says, the two fundamental principles of evolution are mutation and natural selection. But evolution is constructive because of cooperation. New levels of organization evolve when the competing units on the lower level begin to cooperate. Cooperation allows specialization and thereby promotes biological diversity. Cooperation is the secret behind the open-endedness of the evolutionary process. Perhaps the most remarkable aspect of evolution is its ability to generate cooperation in a competitive world. Thus, we might add natural cooperation as a third fundamental principle of evolution besides mutation and natural selection. Thus, Novak says, not only is cooperation interwoven with competition, but it is pivotal for the development of increasing biological complexity. Cells, or even the elements of cells, could not have banded together to form a greater functioning whole without cooperating with each other. Certainly, we know that competition alone only tends to drive individuals apart and kibosh collaborative effort. We can see, for example, the large numbers of cooperating cells which make up our complex human bodies. Cells which don't cooperate are called cancer cells, and they inevitably lead to the destruction of the body. I now want to cite Martin Novak and Sarah Coakley's definitions for the terms cooperation and altruism as elucidated in their book, Evolution, Games and God, since they are pertinent to my argument. Cooperation is a form of working together in which one individual pays a cost in terms of fitness, whether genetic or cultural, and another gains a benefit as a result. This definition explains that if cells or organisms cooperate, they each give up their own unique niche and superior reproductive potential in order that the other may benefit. Altruism 
is a form of costly cooperation in which an individual is motivated by goodwill or love for another. Altruism is thus defined here as a subset of cooperation that applies to humans and perhaps higher mammals who have the cognitive abilities enabling intentional behavior. Altruism implies that the cooperator in effect suffers some significant loss, some negative impact from the altruistic act, more than by cooperation alone. However, biologists tend to define altruism in terms of behavior, regardless of intention, and therefore their use of the term differs from the one given here. Thus, in social insects like ants or bees, workers contribute to the good of the hive without regard for their own well-being or reproductive success, but rather they work to ensure the reproductive success of the queen. Their behavior is directed towards this end, but we have no idea of their intention. We will now move on to discuss game theory, which uses mathematical models to explain the interactions that occur in evolution, as well as in human behavior. Game theory has been pivotal in helping us to understand how cooperation can occur in evolution, as well as how cooperation can survive and flourish in its competitive, selfish environment. A game called the Prisoner's Dilemma is one of the basic models used in game theory. This model describes the opposing behaviors of defection and cooperation, selfishness and selflessness. Two players can each choose to co cooperate with the other, which means that each can act selflessly to benefit their, the other player. Or each player can choose to defect, which means that each can make a selfish choice that benefits themselves and not their partner. Therefore, the choice to either cooperate or defect made by each of the two players affects the payoff or benefit that the other player receives. In a single game of Prisoner's Dilemma, when the two players don't know each other, have no relationship, and just want the best outcome for themselves, it pays to defect, that is, to be selfish and incriminate the other. The gamble to cooperate and hope that the other does too may result in you receiving the greater penalty if the other is selfish and incriminates you. A single game indicates that selfishness is rewarded and would generally be dominant, reinforcing the selfish gene concept. However, things change if a game is repeated with the same partner. Then one builds a relationship that allows one to change one's responses based on one's partner's responses, including the ability to forgive. One such successful strategy was called tit for tat. A real life example of the prisoner's dilemma played out in World War I. 
when German and British soldiers confronted each other in trench warfare, they knew that their actions would impact each other repeatedly for a lengthy but uncertain period of time. Thus, although the generals of each side wanted the enemy annihilated, the frontline soldiers developed an informal live and let live cooperative strategy to minimize retaliation and maximize survival. This unspoken pact allowed, for example, a ceasefire when work parties removed the dead from no man's land and the well-known 1914 Christmas ceasefire. However, any defection by one side from the informal pact, such as unexpected bombing of the other side, resulted in reprisals and more deaths. Cooperation was thus beneficial to both sides, but defection from the informal pact caused more loss of life. In a mixed population of cooperators and defectors, defectors are more likely to dominate and take over the group. We might think about how this would apply in different populations and groups today. Sometimes it seems as though defectors dominate and eliminate cooperation. However, a population comprising only cooperators has the highest fitness as they are all helping each other to survive and reproduce. And one comprising only defectors has the lowest fitness. There's no cooperation there, but only mutual selfishness and destruction. It would therefore seem that natural selection with its selfish bent would encourage individual selfish defection leading to the extinction of cooperators as they would continually lose fitness advantage and not replicate successfully against the defectors. So, how would cooperators get some help in improving their fitness to establish themselves in a population? Building on previous work on game theory, the mathematical biologist Martin A. Novak has summarized five rules that explain the mechanisms which allow co cooperation to survive in evolutionary processes. It is important to note here that these rules apply at both a biological level as well as at a cultural level in human beings. While genes are evident throughout nature, culture describes the practices and norms of groups of human beings. The impact of culture is as important in the development of humans as is the gene. This is the familiar nature versus nurture argument. Genes and culture impact and affect each other, so it's not a one or the other dichotomy. Cooperation and defection can occur at either or both the genetic and cultural levels. Cultural norms and taboos strongly urge compliance and cooperation of individuals within the group, but defection or the failure to conform results either in punishment or in defectors taking over the group. So, the first of Novak's rules is kin selection. Hamilton's rule describes the cooperation that occurs 
between organisms as a result of their relatedness. That is, the closer they are related to each other, the more likely they are to help each other in order to perpetuate their shared genes. We experience in everyday life how important the ties of family are. Each of us would go out of our way to help family members, probably usually more than strangers. Yet humans also regularly go beyond ties of relatedness when helping others. An animal example is that of the red squirrels, which rear orphaned pups who are related to them, despite the possible cost to their own offspring of an extra mouth to feed. The second mechanism is direct reciprocity, also called reciprocal altruism, which occurs between non-related organisms. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You be may benefit from my help today, but hopefully I will benefit from yours next time. So repeated interactions between individuals allow identification of both cooperators and defectors. While this type of interaction is commonly seen between human beings, it's thought that other primates, bats, birds and cetaceans, that is dolphins, whales and porpoises, may have the abilities to do so as well. Another example is the sharing of blood by vampire bats. If a bat fails to get any food on a night's hunting, another bat will regurgitate and share with the expectation of reciprocity on another occasion. The third mechanism, indirect reciprocity, no longer relies on personal interactions, but on reputation. The Harvard biologist David Haig said, for direct reciprocity, you need a face. For indirect reciprocity, you need a name. We are all aware that others watch our behavior and gossip ensures that their judgments are shared socially, destroying and creating reputations. We are more likely to help those who have good reputations for helping others and for benefiting the community. But think twice about helping those who appear to be freeloaders. The fourth mechanism of network reciprocity recognizes that some individuals interact more with each other than with others. We know that we usually tend to mix in the same social groups perhaps usually shop in the same stores, for example. So networks of people who are cooperators are able to help each other and prevail against defectors. The fifth mechanism is group selection or multi-level selection. This recognizes that there are not only differences in behavior between the individuals within groups, but also that there are differences in behavior between groups as a whole. So individual interactions favor defectors, but group interactions favor cooperative groups, which have higher fitness and growth than groups containing defectors. When groups of cooperators outnumber and resist invasion by defectors, they become stable and are able to become increasingly complex. 
stable cooperative societies are critical for healthy human interaction. Often individuals face a social dilemma when they want to avoid the costs of cooperating while benefiting from the advantages of belonging to the group. These are called free riders, and we are familiar with such people who try to take advantage of the system. Animal examples include both musk oxen, which defend their young against predation by wolves, and meerkats, which act as sentinels to warn of danger. Those in the front line incur a personal risk for the benefit of the group. But there is the temptation to defect, that is, not to take a turn in protecting the group and relying on others in the group for protection. Free riders have even been noted in simple organisms like bacteria. I'm sure we can all think of examples of all five mechanisms in our relationships and community life. We can ask ourselves the question, do I tend to cooperate or defect when I interact with individuals and groups in my work and social life? Interestingly then, Stephen Costlin discusses the fascinating finding that our brains may be wired to cooperate. He notes that we each have limitations when it comes to memory capacity, our perceptions of the environment, which result in different experiences, and our reasoning capacity. He observes that in order to overcome these limitations, our brains enable us to use another person as a social prosthesis, that is, to extend and complement our abilities. So, for example, we engage with another person to organize an activity, or we discuss a difficult relationship with a counselor in order to better understand our emotions and responses. By lending and pooling their intellectual resources with us, another individual enables us to become more than we can be alone. We cooperate for benefits that are not achievable alone. However, while our brains may be wired to cooperate, the levels of altruism and agape, the self-sacrificing behavior of which humans are capable, still defy scientific explanation and are thus discussed in the realms of philosophy and theology. British theologian Sarah Coakley worked closely with Martin Novak at Harvard University on the Evolutionary Cooperation Research Program. She has a teleological view of the world, that is, a view of the world filled with purpose and meaning, whose mechanisms of cooperation intimate a divine providence. She sees the fingerprints of a loving God in this process. She understands God to permeate the universe but without disrupting the free will and freedom of its natural processes, which he put in place. We know that he gave human beings free will, so is it stretching things too far to presume that he did the same for nature? Sarah Coakley highlights cooperative gain through loss, embedded throughout the evolutionary process as 
the rich purple line of sacrifice. She understands the losses suffered as a result of cooperation as being integral to the whole of the creative evolutionary process. She thus understands sacrificial altruism in human beings as completing and fulfilling the evolutionary development of cooperation. This is reflective of a God who understands and participates in suffering, especially through the crucifixion of his son. In conclusion, I have briefly discussed the topic of cooperation as an important mechanism in the evolutionary process. So important that without it, the complexity that we experience in nature today, especially as evidenced in ourselves as human beings with all that we are capable of, would not have occurred. I have suggested that this cooperation is evidence of God's fingerprints in the natural world. And as such, we can still call it his creation, even though the process may look different than we thought Genesis was explaining to us. As Charles Kingsley, a friend of Darwin's and a priest in the Church of England said, we knew of old that God was so wise that he could make all things. But behold, he is so much wiser than even that, that he can make all things even make themselves. We wonder at the conflicting mix of competition, suffering and violence, and yet also of cooperation, empathy, altruism and agape evidenced in the evolutionary process. And we remind ourselves that God is working with his new creation in the same way today. The new creation is evolving slowly over time and involves the same messiness, the same mix of selfishness and selflessness, cooperators and defectors, the same expansive use of time to achieve his ends the same free will, which is non-deterministic, but allows the process of new creation to develop. Surely this evolutionary process of new creation is enabled by the unity of the spirit, by the altruistic sacrificial love embodied by Jesus, and by the creative work of the Father. And thus, we look to the increasing complexity of this new creative process that is to culminate in the unified body of Christ in the perfected cosmos. Mm -hmm.